0: learning about Jesus from the one who was his closest friend. Join me, Pastor Hook, as we learn about truth and love from John the Beloved. John. So, last episode we were in 1 John chapter 1 verses 5 through 10. We looked at this concept that Jesus is the light, and then we talked about sin and forgiveness. And you'll have to remember that John lived in a culture that was very Jewish, Ten Commandments centric culture. And so when John talks here, he's talking about how all of us sin, but all of us are forgiven from Jesus. And this is the hallmark of Christian theology, particularly at the time of Luther, the 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 Roman Catholic Church or the major, major church at the time of Luther said that uh, if you sinned, you needed to have reparations for that sin. And they had a whole structure. I think they even still today have a whole structure of things that you can do to get right with God again from your sin. And when Luther came on board and he was looking at Scripture he came to the very real conclusion that that sin isn't just that we need to forgive our, you know, have our sins forgiven, but the fact that we are forgiven, like we all fall short of the glory of God. So we're all sinning all the time. So some of those sins burden us because they're really bad sins and we're worried about whether or not God's going to punish us from those sins. But But what John says is that any sin that you take to God, he's going to forgive. Why? Because you're in the kingdom. And Luther saw this. He said, the, these things that you're, the church has no power over me because I'm in the kingdom and God loves me and any sin that I, I take up to him, he'll forgive me for. I don't, need, I don't need somebody else. I mean, it's great to have somebody else. To say, yeah, God still loves you. I mean, that is a that is a great thing. There's no problem with that at all. And in the Roman Catholic Church, this is this authority is given to priests. And so you go into a confessional booth and you tell the priest everything you've done that's sinful, and the priest will say God forgives you those sins. And there might be a reparation, and the reparation isn't necessarily to make you right with God. The reparation is so that you feel as if you've done something to repent of that sin and this is this is the whole western culture of christianity that has that has just kind of come down from jesus but we talked yesterday about how being in the kingdom be, being forgiven of sins and in the kingdom and being right with god there's actually different cultures around the world where they highlight different things we talked about this one of the ways that that we that cultures look at whether or not a person is, is good or bad is if you're in a shame honor culture, where they shame you, and once you're shamed, you're shamed. There's no coming back. Now in the Christian world, yes, you can come back because why are we shamed? We're shamed because we're we're imperfect human beings. We never do everything right. And so we confess that to Jesus, and we're no longer in a condition of shame we're still in the kingdom or other cultures around the world are more fear cultures. And a fear culture is one where there's demons and you need the power of God in your life to help protect you against the evil things that are running around the world. Now, and, and I'm spending some time on this today because it's so relevant to our world today. When you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you are talking to somebody about their life, you need to listen very carefully to the things they say. If they say something like, this is what I've done, and I don't think God will ever forgive me, then our Protestant forgiveness of sins theology is fantastic. As a matter of fact, I was reading or watching a story about a soldier who came back uh, from the war And while he was serving his country, he did some things that were, that his country asked him to do, but he just couldn't forgive himself. And this pastor then sat down with him and said, you're a child of God. You've been forgiven. Confess that sin to to God and you will be forgiven. And he confessed that sin and this weight of burden of sin on his shoulders went away and he was so happy and pleased. And that works great until the next sin, right? And so... Before Luther, it's like every time you sinned, you had, to, you had to repent of that sin. But Luther understood that forgiveness of sin was like a cloud or an umbrella that followed you, that you live in a state of forgiveness. You don't have to repent of every single sin. Well, another way of looking at that is when a person, another way that you could look at that is when a person says, this isn't what I've done. But a person says, this is who I am. In other words, th- I can't stop sinning because this is, this is how God created me. And because he's created me this way, I'm so compelled to do the things that my, that my natural human self does. Now, Paul actually addresses this in some of his letters. He'll say, why is it that we do the things that we know we shouldn't do, and yet we still continue to do them. And then Paul follows along and says, but you've been forgiven for all those. But what Paul is talking about there is that sometimes when you talk to somebody, they will say not words like, this is what I've done, but they'll say words like, this is who I am. Now, there's a perfect example of this recently in our world today, And I I can't remember the girl's name and I can't remember the situation. I can't remember the college. But apparently when she was in high school, she said a racial thing, a racial slur with a group of friends. And one of those friends was very offended by that. Instead of going to that girl and saying that offended me, he kind of held on to this. She got accepted into a college. I can't remember what college it is. And then he released a videotape or an audio tape or something of her saying this. And the college rescinded her application she's no longer able to go to this college because of something she did a long time ago now this type of thing is called cancel culture and it is where people it's not like a forgiveness of sins thing it's a this is who you are type of thing in other words you violated the social contract of how we should live and you are not a good person. And so we're putting this label on you that you're a bad person. And because we put this label on you, it's going to stay with you for the rest of your life. And that, the Christian church has not done a very good job of addressing this situation because we, as the Protestant Western church, think in terms of, well, Yes. You said something bad when you were in high school. So confess that sin to God and God will forgive you. You're still in the kingdom and life is good. But that's not quite true because the world around her still thinks that she is a bad, evil person. Not because of, I mean, because of what she did, but it goes deeper than that. She is just a bad person. Instead of saying things like, this is what I've done. The society surrounds her and says, this is who you are. And the third one, which I don't know if we'll even get into today, is that if you live in fear all the time, that the demons are surrounding you and, and trying to uh, bring you down into the depths of hell. So words that come out of a person's mouth like that are not, this is what I've done, or this is who I am, or but this is what I fear. Like at my root, this is what I really fear. Now they're all interrelated, right? Like what's the worst fear you could possibly have? The worst fear you could possibly have is that you die and that you never live with God forever because of the things that you've done. That's a very real fear. And so when we confess our sins, when we live in the umbrella of forgiveness of God, we know that when we die, we'll be with him forever. So the the ultimate fear, which is death, has been taken care of. So it's like every other fear really is subservient to that one fear which is that when you die you will be safely in the arms of Jesus forever and for eternity. Though that's fear language. And and we know that as Protestants that when we are when we you know ask God for forgiveness, he forgives us, we live in his kingdom and all that. So that fear is taken care of. But the whole sh- the sh- honor shame thing we have addressed that really well. Every time a person speaks words of shame to modern day Christians, they hear it as words of sin and forgiveness. And so we try to deal with that in terms of sin and forgiveness. And it doesn't help because it's not the sin that's bothering them. It's the fact that they're living in shame. They think they've been outcast from society. And that there's no coming back from that because once you've, this whole idea about council culture in our world today is that once you've kind of revealed yourself as being a horrible person, this stays with you for the rest of your life and there's no redemption from it. And the church is so powerless to help people who are in this world. There's a story that is actually the longest encounter of Jesus with anybody in the New Testament. It comes from John, and it's it's the story of Jesus encountering the Samaritan woman at the well. And I just want to read this real quick. It's John 4, 1 through 26. I'm, one, I'm sorry it's kind of a long, it is the longest one, but it, I just want you to listen very carefully. Um, now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink for Jews do not associate with Samaritans? So I'm just going to stop there. If you've ever heard a sermon on this, it's very curious. Most people went to the well during the morning when it was cool. They got their water for the day and they went back. The reason she was coming in the afternoon in the heat of the day is because she had been cancel cultured from her community. Like she had done things that were so bad. Who she was was so bad, there was no redemption from that. Jesus n- noticed this. What does he do? Well, it goes on. Jesus answered her If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can I get, or where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of life, welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw the water. And he told her, Go call your husband and come back. So, Really quickly, Jesus talks about living water. Now, we know that this living water is that you are in the kingdom of God, that God forgives you and loves you, and you are safely in the kingdom. And that that is even better than the water that could have come out of the well. The water that came come out of the well gives you life and sustenance for a day or two days or whatever. But the life-giving water that Jesus gives is life for eternity. And so Jesus is trying to explain this to her. But then he says, go call your husband and come back. Now, that, this is fascinating because how did Jesus know what's going to happen? But he knew. Probably suspected, I don't know. But this is what happens. The woman answered Jesus and she says, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have five husbands and the man you have is not your husband what you have said is quite true. I'll just stop right there. So Jesus knew that there was something going on in her life that was wrong. Maybe he suspected that she had this husband, this guy that she was living with, and it, you know, and all that. And the whole society was shunning her because of all of this. She had to come to the well in the afternoon because of all of this. But Jesus spends time and talks to her. Now I'll just pause for a moment. Jesus is a rabbi who's trying to build an audience, a culture. He's trying to, to be on the right side of the world and to preach things and have people listen to him. And the fact that he's talking to this woman, he's a Jew, she's a Samaritan, she's also a, a canceled Jew, a canceled Samaritan, and she comes to the well and he talks to her. This is a huge risk for Jesus because when Jesus talks to her, he is risking his reputation, his future ministry, he's risking everything to provide a little bit of a connection to her, give her a little bit more honor, and reduce his own honor. He like is transferring honor to her. I mean, you, you, it, you have to read between the lines here to see that, but by, by him talking to her, he's at some level restoring her dignity, uh, restoring uh, the shame that she's felt. She's bringing honor, he's bringing honor to her shame. He's risking this in order to do that. Just an important point. So she she continues on. She says, "Sir, I see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where you must worship is in Jerusalem." So again, she knows she knows about her faith. She knows that she's a Samaritan. That they worship on this mountain, which is the one that's in Samaria, that the uh, Gezerim, I think it is, and, uh, and the Jews worship in is in uh, Jerusalem. So she, she at some level knows about faith and knows about God and she understands this. Jesus says, woman, believe me, the time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus said, I, the one speaking to you, am he. That's the end. We learn more about her later on and her witness, but that's it. Jesus doesn't tell her to to confess her sin of living with this guy and um, God will forgive her. Why not? Well, first of all, she's living in sin with this guy and she can't leave. She is in that culture. A woman had to be attached to a man for sustenance, for life. It took two or more people to run a household because somebody had to come and draw the water and somebody had to do, you know, the food and all that sort of thing. And then somebody had to go. I mean, it, it just literally took at least two people to live in that society. And if you were a single widowed woman without a husband, you had children. It was it was miserably difficult. I mean, it's still miserably difficult today. If you are a single mother trying to raise children. And I've known many and I've known many, many great ones, but it is very, 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 very difficult. It just is so much simpler with two people. It, it just makes life so much easier. Jesus does not come to her and say, Repent. He says, I'm offering you living water. Which he does. His this conversation was the living water. This conversation is one where she had this encounter with this great prophet, and he didn't and she is able then to tell. Um, the world about it. And, and later on in the story, the people come and ask her about this whole thing. Tell us about this encounter. They came to her. They uncanceled her. They, she got honor again. I mean, I mean, this encounter with Jesus was honor. Now, the reason I'm spending so much time on this today is because if there are people in our culture who are being shamed by our culture, and this is hard, canceled by our culture. The call of the church is to, to talk to those people and say, God, we know that that we all sin. This is what John says here. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But when you confess that sin, God forgives you. First and foremost, God forgives you. And if God forgives you, then we forgive you. And if we've forgiven you and God has forgiven you, you are still, you remain in the kingdom of God. You, you are still a child of the king, and he loves you immensely. And we are not going to cancel you. We are not going to shame you. We're not going to say that how God creates you or how you live your life or the things that you're doing separate you from God's love or outside of the kingdom. These are words that we need to talk to our culture around us because they're not hearing it. The words they're hearing are, well, You've sinned, and until you ask God for forgiveness from that sin, we're just not going to talk to you. We're we're just, we're going to cancel you out, and I think of all the people, and this is a big deal in our culture today because there are so many different things that people say this is who I am, and the church isn't hearing that. They're saying, well, this is what you've done, and so you just need to confess that sin to God, and he will forgive you. Whereas probably the more appropriate way is to say, yes, I agree, that's who you are, and that's how God created you. And you know what? We still love you the way that God created you. We are still going to be walking. We're going to risk some of our political capital to say that we love you and that you are in the kingdom and that we're going to bring honor back into your life. Now, that is all well and good. The, the thing is, is that... When you are in the kingdom, you're also an ambassador for the kingdom. So at some level, you have to understand that your major identity isn't this thing that you think you are. Your major identity, your identity first and foremost, is that you're a child of God and a child of the king. And you have to get that identity first. And so there are people out there, they say, this is how, this is who I am. This is how, you know, I I can't change from this. And they put that identity over the identity which comes from God, which is you are a child of the king. He loves you. He created you. You need to get that identity first, and then everything else falls into place. This whole idea about, about fear, about shame, and about uh, fear, shame, and sin, all, like all three of those are really wrapped up tightly into one little thing called being in the kingdom. And we just need to be very, very careful when we listen to somebody. And, and they, if you're talking to somebody from a culture that's a power shame culture, uh, a power fear culture, you can talk about how God forgives you. You can talk about how you're still in the kingdom. But what they really, really need to hear is that the power of the Holy Spirit is living in their life and is protecting them from the evil one. And they have nothing to fear because God's there walking along beside them if you if somebody says to them the demons are coming and i can't get the demons out i can't protect myself from the demons i'm going to say something i'm going to do something A, the church might say something like well every time you sin you know make sure you say you say you're sorry for god so that the demons are still there right or uh or or things like that no what we need to tell people is that you are in the kingdom you are firmly through the power of your baptism, you are in the kingdom, and God's Spirit walks with you every day of your life, helping you fight the battles. And that will provide comfort for fear if you've got if you believe the demons are you know surrounding you. If that's the culture that you live in, that is more comfort than saying, "Well, every time you sin, you need to ask God for forgiveness," or even perhaps saying that you live in this state of forgiveness with God. And that you're firmly ensconced in the in the kingdom. What a person who lives in this this power, um, this fear power culture, they just need to hear that that God's power is with them. So i i have, I apologize for spending a lot of time on this, and but I think it's an important lesson because what John says is true. If we say we have no sin. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, God who is faithful and just will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all our righteousness. But he does more than that. He also doesn't kick us out of the kingdom. He brings us honor and he brings us his spirit's power. All of these things are in this idea of being a child of God and living in the kingdom. And Western church has really Focus so much on the forgiveness of sins aspect that we've kind of lost sight of the other two, and the and the other reason why I bring this up is because we have so many people that come from different cultures, and then they create cultures. Generations have different cultures. Like my cult, my generation is definitely, a, you know, a sin forgiveness type of culture. You know, justification is great for me. But some of the people who are younger than me, like my kids and my grandkids, they may live in a culture that's radically different from how I think about the world. And so I just need to be very careful when I talk to them. And I also need to be careful to understand what God really truly does say about things. Because if a person comes to you, like the woman at the well, and says, this is kind of who I am, and I can't change because it's who I am. It's it's an identity. Then say to them, well, God loves you, and we love you, I love you, and I will risk my uh, honor to love you as much as I can. And the one thing I want you to know is that while this may be your identity, you have another identity, and that other identity is being a child of the king. And because you're a child of the king, you have all the honor and the rights and privileges just as you are. From being a child of the king um i, I did want to say one other thing the, the western church um early on early early on when we baptized somebody we basically just baptized them i mean these encounters in acts there's a there's a brief encounter but ama- amazingly all these encounters are very quick and rapid As a matter of fact, on Sunday, we talked about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And Philip explains about Jesus. And the Ethiopian eunuch is like, I want to be baptized now. And Philip says, great. Let me get you in the kingdom. You're in the kingdom now. Somewhere along the line, around 300 to 700 AD, you know, it became that when you're going to baptize somebody, you had to tell them all the different things about the kingdom before they were baptized. Then you had to get a commitment from them that they would try to live their life according to that. And that's really the basis of the whole entire um, idea about, about you know, Western Christianity is that you, know, you have to make this ascent that you're going to live your life for Jesus. You're going to follow him or whatever. But in the early, early church, they just wanted people to come into the, into the kingdom. Like Peter preaches on Pentecost this, uh, this wonderful sermon. And they said, what should we do? And they were cut to the heart. And Jesus says, well, just repent and be baptized. Let's get you in the kingdom. And they did, 3,000 people were baptized that day. The reason why I bring this up is because I think the historical way of looking at this from the church is that it's like the difference between the police force and the army. In the police force, you say, I wanna be in the police force. And then you learn all the things about how, doing, how it is to do police work. And then you graduate from the academy and then they enter you into the police force. That's how the police force works. The army's different. The army is we'll bring into the army and then we're going to teach you. We're going to find something that you can do to help us in the army. We will do everything in our power to help you. And even if you end up with some, you know, disablement, we're going to we're going to work around you and try to find a way for you to serve. And my understanding of the kingdom is we should be more like the army. Just take anybody and then work with them in the kingdom to try to figure out how they can serve God in the kingdom. We, we want them partnered with us to serve God to be the hands and feet of the world. It's not like this, this police officer thing where we're trying to, um, you know, they prove their worth and then we bring them in. No, God has worth for them and will bring anybody into the kingdom, which is why I like the idea of infant baptism. It kind of points that out. That we'll take anybody for the kingdom and then we'll let God work in their hearts and their lives to figure out how they can serve God. All right, I've gone way too long on this, but I just wanted to kind of point that out because it has been it's been on my heart actually for a long, long time. And this is just a perfect opportunity to kind of share these thoughts with you because of what John says in first John four, uh, seven, eight, and nine. So let's close in prayer. Dear God. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your honor, and thank you for your power. Be with me today and every day. In your son's name, amen.